Hey everyone, Austin here. On today's episode, Ken and I are joined by guest host Evelyn Rupert to discuss Pan's Labyrinth, the 2006 dark fantasy movie written and directed by Guillermo del Toro. Set during the Spanish Civil War, the movie is a tragic parable influenced by Western fairy tales like those written by the Brothers Grimm or depicted by Walt Disney. Yet while there are multiple nods to the latter, the movie's comfort definitely falls more in line with the Brothers Grimm's affinity for child death and creepy woodland creatures. You want to start? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, we have a special guest today. Who's our special guest? She's silent. Okay, good. <laughs> All right, so we're going to do this in a couple of phases here. Today's episode is Pan's Labyrinth, the 2006 great film directed by Guillermo del Toro. Um, should we give it, should we do, we'll do ratings at the end, right? Yeah. What are I we agree. rating? What are we, what are we, what is this times like uh, X out of X? What are we going to do? Well, for, for um, City of God, we did Chicken Manny's. So I think uh, for Pan's, we should do Creepy Fawns. Creepy Fawns? Okay. Yeah. Well, for Seven Samurai, we did How Many Samurai Out of Seven Samurai. I think I give it five out of Seven Samurai. Um, creepy Fawn? I don't know if Creepy Fawns is the best. Well, what, why'd you ask me? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. We'll think about it as we go. <laughs> Three fairies. Three fairies? Oh, okay. How many out of uh, um, Evelyn suggesting three fairies? How, out of how many fairies? Okay. One to three fairies. So that'll be the running question. The end. At the end, we'll all decide out of how many three fairies with their heads bitten off or without their heads bitten off. <laughs> well, obviously, if their heads bitten off, that's half a fairy. True. So yeah. you can go for half a fairy. <laughs> yes. Okay. Headless fairies count as half fairies. So only one fairy. Well, I guess if you take one and two halves lived. Well, I guess they didn't live. So I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Okay. Some fairies were harmed in the making of this movie. <laughs> okay, so brief background. Just to, before we're gonna do some different, we're gonna do a different approach this time. We're gonna jump into some historical narratives as well, kind of frame the context with our resident Spaniard Evelyn in the house. Um, so, uh, yeah, just brief background on the movie. Um, so, Pan's Labyrinth in Spanish is is called El Fano del. How do you say labyrinth in Spanish? Labyrinth. Can you say that in Spanish? Hold on. Say the whole thing. Is it fauna del? El fauno. El fauno del labyrinto. And does, doesn't that mean like the labyrinth of the fawn? Is that is that what it translates to? Yeah. So, I guess they just translated fawn into pan. Yeah. Well, it's less of a translation. I read the same thing. It's like, it's basically for American audiences. They just added pan, like, because the mythology of pan is more is more palatable for. Dumb Americans, I guess. But I really think we should refer to. I mean, we're not going to. We're going to refer to it as Pan's Labyrinth, but we should really acknowledge that that's the real title. Yeah, I think if you were to ask uh, Guillermo, he would kind of laugh at the fact that he had to use Pan's Labyrinth. It like it like um, what do they call it? Call it market tested better in America. He's also Mexican, just to let you know. Yes. Yeah. And he's he's actually. I think I watched like. 30 to uh, like 45 minutes of just interviews with him and he's kind of a hilarious guy he curses a lot <laughs> so okay and uh wait didn't you watch you watch devil's backbone did you watch shape of water too right i did All right, did, you, so, did you guys get a chance to watch that? no so you'll have oh, to so good. Be part, we'll have to do a um overview of of your your uh your deep dive into our boy guillermo yeah <laughs> uh, we, I, we, were, we were watching the golden globes and we were we were like talking about how Who's the other uh, Del Toro? Bianco? Benico? Benito. The guy that's in like Star Wars, the new Star Wars now. He's in tons of Benicio. other stuff. Benicio. Yeah. He's in like the Heineken commercials and stuff. As who? One of that uh, well, no, actors? I always thought yeah. Guillermo Del Toro looked like, like, he's like a very attractive, like, like dark Spanish, like, like his eyes are, you know, he, I don't know. Guillermo is like, like a, he's just kind of a big blob and I, I love him. Like, <laughs> like he's, he, in my head, he looks like nervous. Benicio. He's, he's kind but, of like a, uh, a more fit George R.R. R. Martinson. <laughs> <laughs> Martinson? Yeah. Yeah. It's Martin. It's Martin. Uh, is it, is it Martin? Oh, oops. <laughs> okay. So, so, wait, so, so, uh, this, this movie is set during the Spanish Civil War. Yes. Which actually is set in the same time as one of his first movies, um, the Devil's Backbone. So there's like a history of Guillermo, who's a, like a Spanish director, setting these movies in in a Spanish uh, setting, and and the movie itself 
um, is at this like moment where there's like rebels and 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 like like um, unrest happening. So, um, Evelyn, you're here with us today. What what Hi. hey, <laughs> what um what's like going on during this time? So the movie at the beginning it says it's taking place in 1944. So it's actually kind of after the main stretch of fighting which took place between 36 and 39 so you also have to remember that this is going on at the same time as world war ii which is why i think a lot of people don't know a lot about the spanish civil war um so in 44 by this time franco francisco franco who was the dictator who orchestrated a coup um he has pretty much consolidated power and taken over most of spain in the beginning, Spain was really like divided in half between between cities and areas that he had kind of taken control of, and and these holdout cities like Madrid and Barcelona. Mm-hmm. So, but by this time, pretty much he is running the show, and um, but the the movie kind of centers around these leftover. Um, guerrilla fighters who are still kind of making a stand and and trying to win back territory and also just kind of disrupt his rule um so you know this the as as he kind of moved into new territories throughout spain people were fleeing him um, because it was there was a lot of executions and kidnappings or you would be forced to join forces with him so people were fleeing kind of into the mountains and they got pushed farther and farther and they were making kind of little attacks guerrilla type attacks on production and and um you know weapons and their supplies and things like that but eventually a lot of people ended up fleeing to france um, but France was itself not really a very safe place at this time because the Nazis had taken over mm-hmm. there or were about to. Um, so a lot of Spaniards actually ended up joining the French resistance um, to Hitler. And after the World War II ended, many of them kind of turn their attention back to Spain and they and they wanted to um, try and reclaim some territory from from Franco in the hopes that Spain would be liberated in the same way that other countries in Europe were being liberated from the Nazis um, so there was this group and, and that's who you see kind of in the woods in Pan's Labyrinth there's this group of guerrilla fighters who were called Maquis in, in France. Maquis? I think so. I don't know. I'm not. Does that mean something? Um, I saw that it kind of comes, it's derived. Yeah. It's like derived from a word meaning like shrubbery or thicket, I guess, because they were like hiding. Can the gorillas like hiding in the, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so what we see happening in the movie is, um, I think is, is some of these type of fighters who, even though Franco's already pretty much won the battle, they're just trying to, as they say, like at least give him hell, basically, mm-hmm. and, and make it as hard for him as, as possible. So um, you actually saw in, in the early 40s people coming back over the, over the French border and launching these little guerrilla attacks um, throughout Catalonia. Um, and yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of the characters that we see, um, with Pedro and, and Mercedes. So, so if I'm understanding, this whole thing is taking place during World War II. So World War II is like definitely overshadowing the whole event. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of this, you have these resistance fighters who many of them flee to France. And after World War II kind of starts to sum up. They, you see a return of these freedom fighters, these rebels, who are really using guerrilla tactics to take back over their territory and their homelands from the fascist regime? Is that correct? Okay. Yeah, that's right. Um, and ultimately, they were not successful because Franco, oh, no. Franco was in power until he died in 1975. Really? So yes. 
when when we look at these characters in the film, like Mercedes and and was it Pedro, mm-hmm. Mercedes, Mercedes yeah. and Pedro, um, do are so are you saying that they're on the losing side in that they we we see these characters finish out the film, kind of kind of give the main guy his just desserts, uh, walk away, but ultimately it's it's into a futile future. Yeah, I think I think that's that's probably unfortunately is the is the truth. I mean, these these sorts of forces I think took back some small villages and um some smaller towns, but they never really made any big progress against what was by this time a pretty well-established regime. Mhm. Yeah. I mean, so that's that's kind of kind of a amazing overtone for the movie in that what the first scene is is almost like a Romeo and Juliet style scene where you see um Ophelia dying on on um on the steps of the the labyrinth and you kind of ultimately know that the movie's going to return back to an ultimate defeat. And these rebels, even though they win that particular battle, they're returning to some kind of ultimate defeat themselves. And then I guess we're left to kind of decide, I guess, through Ophelia's character, if there is some kind of like mental liberation or mental win that that like everybody in the movie is going through of sorts. Is that, I, I, I was going to kind of just. I mean, I, I think it's really interesting that, well, we can go in a lot of directions on this one, but it is interesting that, well, that Mercedes and Pedro are the only characters to live. And yeah. If you think about. I think that what kind of uh, I, I kind of dove into this as well a little more and how how um, they're kind of well we can get into this as well so like you you basically think about like the power of the story at the time right right like if it ultimately was a losing war this was a story to be told in a time where the battle was won and I started really thinking a lot about the realms of fantasy and reality and how uh, Guillermo del Toro like wanted that to be perceived. And in the, I guess in the re, in the real world, the only people to live are uh, Mercedes and Pedro, because I mean the doctor is shot, Vidal dies. I guess the baby lives on, Carmen dies. But also, in her in her fantasy world, Ophelia does pick and choose certain people to live as well. Like her her mother lives on in her own fantasy world. Mm-hmm. Um, the king comes back. The fawn is also in her fantasy world. So if you think about who lives and dies in the movie, I guess ultimately she lives in her in the the plot of the movie but we can argue whether del toro actually uh meant for that to be reality or just just fantasy and i've heard it argued both ways actually yeah actually if you watch um uh guillermo's um interviews he specifically says that he set the movie up to allow for the viewer to choose whether ophelia's death is um a death of uh, a, a a real death mixed with a preservation hallucination, or if there if Ophelia is actually wrapped up in this mystical world, and Guillermo actually takes the stance that while he left it open for everybody to interpret, he personally likes to believe that Ophelia is part of this logical mystic world mm-hmm. uh, where there is a fawn who's guiding her towards a uh, a rightful heir that that she left behind like a millennia ago or something. Tell us about your your kit of parts. Well, so I, like, should we should we very quickly just summarize what 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 happens in the film? Yeah, actually, that, and I think I should follow up with what I was working on as well, just because it relates to the historical context. Is okay. So I'll, you mean to give me like a two minute overview of the film? Yeah. So I can. I mean, do you want to do it or I can do it? Uh, you go ahead. You can do it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, effectively, this the film is kind of centered around how old is Ophelia? Twelve, maybe. Yeah, she's like somewhere between like eleven and thirteen. Yeah, very young. young. A young girl um, arrives with her mother um, to this what would you call it a stronghold? Basically, it's it's basically in in wartime. It's basically a very very nice cabin stronghold. Or, yeah, you'd call it like a captain's front line post. Captain's front line post. Perfect. Exactly the yeah. words I was looking for. Um, that's basically you know a a place that has been established in the kind of new fascist regime, regime as a. Uh, supply center for people in the area but it really has this kind of uh, totalitarian brutal kind of authoritarian vibe obviously run by Vidal the the captain the leader of the whatever the the Franco's forces are 
Um, and basically the whole the whole premise kind of the whole movie kind of up you know teeters on the premise of fantasy and reality where you see the fantastical world right from the beginning through Ophelia's eyes. Um, she's kind of getting these hints of what is to come, and, it, and from the very very beginning, we also get a backstory of that. There's a there's a kingdom in the labyrinth which, which happens to be just uh, well, the labyrinth is a portal to a kingdom that's right next to the the uh, cabin, right? Yeah, the movie like starts with a narrative overtone explaining that this this princess from this fantastical underworld decides that she's bored of her existence. She right leaves uh, this kind of underground kingdom, is blinded by the light of the world, and ultimately ends up perishing. And the king, in his hope to see his daughter again, builds these labyrinths across the land, and that these labyrinths would act as portals, so if his daughter was ever reincarnated, right. she might possibly stumble upon them in the future. She'll return yeah. in another body, but maybe not knowing that she was the... Well, she would have forgotten in her time with the humans that she was a princess all along. Yeah. So is, is what you're so what you're describing is what Ophelia and her mother are going to be with the captain at this outpost, right. and a couple of the opening scenes is Ophelia stumbles upon one of these portals. Right. So effectively, the the movie is a kind of a a tiered system of her completing tasks that are uh, introduced by the fawn to kind of uh, whether she knows it or not, kind of regain her uh, underground throne in the in the in the underground kingdom, basically through the labyrinth. But I mean, it's definitely a, a scary story. It's a tragic story. It's one of uh, incredible loss at times, but also incredible hope at other times. Should I go, should I go the spoiler all the way to the end? Yeah, I mean, we're we're assuming that if if they're listening to this, they're going to watch the okay. movie. Yeah. All right, so task so task one is the toad, right? Well, do we want to go through the tasks, or do we want to like kind of give the arc of the of Okay, the movie? so basically she completes three tasks, um, and, along the, and along the arc of the movie, the, uh, the violence with the rebels is kind of escalating. Uh, you see kind of who allies with who. You have Mercedes, who's kind of the... Um, who is the maid of the house who serves Vidal, but also is a valuable link to the her brother and the rebels, uh, Pedro being the head rebel. You have the doctor who is um, basically the military doctor, but also is sympathetic towards the rebel cause. And the rebels are basically uh, surrounding the encampment uh, throughout the movie and kind of peppering Vidal's forces and teasing them to come kind of chase them out into the, into the wilderness. Um, and the entire time... It, it, uh, Ophelia's mother is pregnant uh, with Vidal's baby, who he believes to be a boy uh, from the very beginning, with no knowledge of whether it's a boy or a girl. Um, and you know, you kind of see as it uh, as the plot moves along that her situation is becoming more and more dire. And ultimately, she ends up dying in childbirth, and which leaves Ophelia completely kind of in her completely alone and in her fantastical world. Um, so, you want to wrap it up? Ophelia's arc is that stumbling upon this this labyrinth, the fawn really presents this option to complete these three tasks, and and as all these ext- like exterminating like factors are occurring, Ophelia going uh, Ophelia's mother going through pregnancy, these rebels attacking, um, Ophelia is really trying to get a grasp on this potential of being this lost princess going through these three tasks, which ultimately is getting her in trouble or she's having to defy a lot of people. Do you, do you think she's trying to become a lost princess or she's just curious? That's uh, I don't know. Does she really ever know the like actual enormity of her quest? Like, or, or does she actually just, you know, or is she actually just genuinely interested in the distraction from reality to kind of complete these tasks? I, I think if I had to boil the movie down into two words, it would be about escapism and disobedience and bold claim yeah yeah i try to be a bold person making bold claims but um i think if we look at every character they're going through an option of either dealing with what's going on or escaping it or trying to go through like a like a moment of escapism or they are choosing between obedience and disobedience and and i think the the whole idea is that the spanish um, civil war creates this overarching backdrop of everybody's choice as part of this society to accept what's going on, escape it. Um, and if they do accept it, whether they're accepting it as a means of being obedient towards it or being disobedient to the fascists. And I think the characters are in turn kind of vessels for all the different ways that you could accept or reject this kind of larger yeah. political overtone. 
Yeah, I agree. I, but I also would, I would, I would tread lightly. And I, I think, I think, well, fiction and especially fantasy is often labeled with the kind of uh, like shallowness of escapism, like that that it's kind of chalked up to only being escapism. Like we've talked about a little bit before. I think like Del Toro would argue that. Um, her escapism is really the kind of more is is more real and has more substance than a lot of the quote unquote real environment that she's in. So escapism, I, it's always a word that I'm I'm like tentative to use because it's kind of has an it kind of has a little bit of a negative connotation to it. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. just a thought. Yeah, yeah. So so, can you're you're saying that you wanted to tie this back in into the larger. Um, Civil War context, and right. you also looked into the characters themselves. What's going yeah. on there? Yeah, so can you bring that doc, well, doc up real quick? Yeah. So, well, just to kind of tie back into what Evelyn was saying, I think there's a lot of really, um, came back to the top too, there's a lot of really uh, clear like symbols that um, a lot of these characters are are, are um, portraying. You basically have, I'll just go over like, briefly what we were looking at. Like, So you basically have Vidal, who's kind of this... Uh, War, like I basically was trying to figure out how people deal with war, and we talked about this actually with Seven Samurai a little bit, and like how post-war, how societies basically deal with the harsh realities of a post-war environment, yes. and how like a lot of the people are inevitably on the losing side, right? And I was thinking like if 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 conflict has to kind of leap diplomacy and 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 use war in the first place, the violent side usually will kind of prevail, you know. So. Basically, like these people are either left in this vacuum of hopelessness or in a vacuum where they have to continue their kind of wartime policies to kind of uh, view their lives as like a success, you know? So like Vidal kind of is this like, he won the war, they're in the war, but he's his the rest of his life will basically operate as like a war. Like he's only going to be the try to be the victor, right? Like this harsh brutality basically, right? And he's kind of the... And a lot of this has to do with like uh, gender roles and, and and societal roles at this time. Like he was the you know the prominent man at the right and on the right side at the right time. Like he just you know kind of uh, benefited from all those advantages, and he's gonna just continue continue it regardless of how terrible his reign is, basically, right? Yeah. Um, and you you know like we talked about, you have Pedro and the rebels, and kind of they're basically dug in too deep to their own. Uh, basically their own methodologies and lifestyles, like rebellion as a continuum. Like rebellion, if they were to just side with um, Vidal and ultimately Franco in the end, like their their status their status as guerrilla fighters would just be for nothing. So they have to continue the the kind of uh, the path that they've been on, you know. And uh, so Mercedes on the flip side, which I, I want to talk about her a little more. We didn't talk about her a bunch. The- I, I think she's one of the most. She's the best. She's my she, favorite character. She, she's like one of the most pivotal characters, but one of the most like subtly she like her presence is simultaneously always in the forefront front, but also hidden the entire time. Yeah. It's 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 it's, it's like because Ophelia is such a main character, Carmen is constantly put in second position. But Carmen is like has just as much, if not even maybe more, screen time than Ophelia in some portions of the movie. Yeah, we talked about Carmen's role. Me and Evelyn were talking about that last night. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about Carmen, but we'll 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 go. We'll get to that. Um, so like, so Mercedes. What, oh, what is oh the... Mercedes. That's who I was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I yeah, was gonna yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So go back up to Mercedes. Yeah. Actually. And so, then everything I said in the last three minutes was about Mercedes. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, so what's the word for? Was it inless inlesses? The link, the link. That's what they called them, right? Enlace. Enlaces. Oh, yes. Yeah. C is the TH, right? <laughs> We're in Spain, so yes. What is it? Enlace. What is this word? It, it literally means link. So the Mercedes means link? No, no, no. Um, Mercedes means mercy, actually, mm. which is interesting. Mm. Um Enlace is like the word that they use for people like Mercedes who were basically the link between the rebels and the rest of society. So like passing on mail and supplies and um, intel and things like that. So they were really dependent on people like her who oftentimes were at an even higher risk um, because they were living amongst people who would kill them if they found out. You know. Yeah. What do you think about Mercedes' character, or is it Mercedes? 
It's Mercedes. They don't do the. They don't do the. <laughs> Mercedes. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Like people, like people in Barcelona say Barcelona. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. what do you think about it? Give us your opinion. Give us your two cents. <laughs> about Mercedes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um... As a guest, you can you can speak at least one third <laughs> of the amount of the time. <laughs> Talking the mic. <laughs> Let me, let, me, let me ask you what? this. Let me ask you this, Evelyn. What did you think of the movie itself? Like, did you enjoy That's it? An even harder question. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I did enjoy the movie very much. How I, many fairies? How many fairies? I give it, like, at least a two and a half fairies. Like, if, if you were put in this position, do you think that you would take more of a position like Ophelia and would chase, chase dreams, or do you feel like... That's a tough question, no. You would be more like Mercedes, who is this, like, middle man who's trying to, like, get intel and... Yeah. I mean, everyone wants to think that they're, like, Mercedes, but I think people were, you know, put in an impossible situation, which is how many... I think most people would end up more like Carmen, where you you just say, all right, this is how our world is now, so we might as well just, like, do the best that we can, even if that means marrying a cruel, terrible person. In, in in the kind of spectrum of characters, do you think Carmen is or could be considered one of the weakest characters by how relenting she was? Well, I mean, she's probably the strongest. I mean, like, it's a hard... I was kind of critical of, of Carmen in the film. I mean, like, she just is... She obviously lost her husband. She's been through intense trauma. Her, her position in society right now is probably not the best. And she's aligning herself with you know, the best position she has for her and her daughter. And, like, she often she often comes across as, like, cold and unapologetic, but, like, who can blame her? She's had a terrible uh, bit of luck. She's terribly pregnant, and the medicine's by just, you know, not working. Obviously, she has some terrible spells, but it kind of, like, I think Mercedes and Ophelia's relationship kind of supplants Ophelia and Carmen's relationship. Like, Carmen, they have a couple nice moments, like, when I think she, like, lays on her stomach and is talking to the baby and, like, in the beginning, and you... But even from the beginning, she's kind of like yelling at, or at Ophelia. She's just trying to be a good mother, but like it's just she's just had enough, and she's alone in her situation basically. So you you see throughout the movie like how Mercedes kind of becomes this like mother figure, and she's ultimately the one that that finds Ophelia in the end. Is just so like I think that actor or actress does a really incredible job at like showing that her like that her face in the end like such emotional loss that you almost would expect from like a mother, and she becomes like this like real more sister but motherly figure as well you know yeah yeah so like the, that's an interesting example so like so mercedes and carmen are, are two different examples of how how women women at that time in the post-war society even if they're not re- directly rebellious like mercedes is it like to the cause that carmen was probably she probably would have sided with the rebels re- regardless anyway but she just has to do what she has to do that kind of thing you know in order to survive I think it's interesting that they like don't you never really you never really see Mercedes and Carmen interacting. Like I don't know I don't remember them like having any dialogue between the two of them. Like there're scenes when Mercedes is like bringing in a tray of food or whatever, but I think um Del Toro really like separates them. So yeah. you can kind of compare the two um without them really having any overlapping relationship at all. Yeah, and that's one thing I actually started to map was the relationships in the um, in the film. Mm-hmm. And so I basically, I was trying to create like circular diagrams, like labyrinthian kind of diagrams about like who actually knew each other and who, who I can control the thing. So like who actually knew each other and who didn't. So like it's not perfect yet, but I was thinking about like Ophelia as the center. And I actually, as I went along, I found that like some, that she's not necessarily like the center of a lot of interaction. She just happens to be the person that, has both narrative arcs, right? Like the doctor and Mercedes actually are more of the characters that do kind of see and talk to everyone just because they're on like a, a service kind of level in a way. Yeah, they're like the quote unquote spies. So yeah. it's kind of their mission to, to be in the know and to be talking to everybody. Right. So I like, there's a lot of level. I started, started making like concentric rings of like who actually was closest in my mind to Mercedes in the beginning, like either by blood or by relationship or by seeing them or by knowing of them, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So like, and then I was trying to think, okay, but just because someone uh, 
is blood related or knows someone very well doesn't mean they're actually close. So I was trying to figure out like who was linked in this in this situation, and then ultimately I was trying to figure out how that affected the, like their outcome, whether they lived or died, or whether they kind of um, what kind of situation they were in. So basically, so and it's something I think we should maybe start doing for other films, but this is not not quite good yet. So basically, like there's blood, there's like blood or like very strong relationships like Mercedes and Pedro that you see like she's just overcome with emotion when she sees him like in the in the hills like she gives him a hug and you have Ophelia and Carmen who even if they kind of stray away they're still blood related you have Vidal kind of like pining for his on like his baby that doesn't exist yet which is like a relationship that isn't necessarily tangible but is kind of uh driving the kind of his daily action in a way Mm -hmm. and like you notice I didn't include like Vidal and Carmen because they don't basically they basically don't have a relationship I mean, yeah. they don't even sleep in the same room. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. Like he, like he, he's so obsessed with the baby that he actually tells the doctor to put her in a separate room and he'll sleep in the. Well, or just to save the baby over her life. Exactly. That's a, that's yeah. A lot of yeah. His his priorities yeah. are definitely baby first. Yeah. And then you kind of have like the fawn and his fairies who are like who are like eternally linked that kind of thing, right? So, you, be, you know, there's like a lot of strong relationships, and then you kind of. There's another relationship that exists only in the end that Ophelia's mind, or that even not in her mind, but like the uh, the king and and his. It's the same actress in the end, right? Like as the queen, right? So Carmen is in like the underworld. There's a kind of this like triangulation that is kind of doesn't exist, but is driving the action, kind of shepherded by the fawn in a way. I actually I did just in the last like ten minutes since we started talking. Um, I was thinking, what a twist would it be if the queen was actually Mercedes at the end and not, and not Carmen and that it spoke to like some kind of deeper meaning, um, about those who, um, birth us versus like those who actually raise us or, or like, um, have some kind of like deeper social or emotional connection. Yeah. I think that's what kind of brought Carmen back around for me because like she ultimately was in the, uh in the fantasy or in, in the, the fantasy realm in the end. So it's not like, you know, Ophelia forgot about her. She was always there, that kind of thing. You know? Yeah. She, maybe Carmen couldn't, she obviously couldn't help that what was happening to her was happening to her, you know? And even even in the distress, she knew all the different ways that she could kind of reach Ophelia emotionally, like ask her to tell the baby a story right. or make her a dress. Um, I mean, like, even though Ophelia... It didn't end very well, though. Yeah, even, even though Ophelia does, like, trashes the dress, like, she still cares for the fact that her mom made it by taking it off and hanging it on the yeah. on the um, branch and everything. Yeah, it's mother-daughter relationship. It doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah, exactly. So I was trying to also start, like, to triangulate, like, relationships and bonds that were happening. So you have, like, an alliance between, like, the doctor and Mercedes and Pedro, like, of the rebellion. You also have the alliance of, like, Ophelia, the fawn, and the fairies trying to, like... They're they're kind of the rebellious cause, and they, those actually become stronger, like connections, like triangulated. You basically have three players in the system to kind of help you along in a way. So like, you have someone like Vidal who doesn't have any meaningful relationships, and ultimately he dies, but because he doesn't have these like teams to help him, you know, in life basically, right? And then there's like there's all these other connections of who actually knows, you know, who is serving who, who is who knows that someone else exists, and there's a lot of layers this we can go through. But one thing I found is that that basically the strength of someone's connections kind of dictates whether they live or died in a lot of ways. It's kind of like a critique on like life in general, but like Vidal is interacts with every character, but he has, his strengths are all very, very, very low. He doesn't have any like meaningful kind of connections to anybody. And it, it ultimately like is his downfall, but you have someone like, uh, you have someone like Mercedes who basically meets every other character, but she has established like other strong relationships that help her basically succeed and live in the end. So, it's it's uh, there's some things like I was wondering like throughout the uh, I was like trying to map relationships like does the fawn actually know the toad and the pale man do the pale man and the toad know each other like have they come across each other are they like are they just like living on completely different wavelengths you know what I mean mm-hmm. like or does the king it, like in the, in the end like does he know of of like the toad and the pale like are are these just completely separate. Uh, separate uh like instances in the world are they like tests that the fawn creates are they like there are they known factors in the underworld kind of thing i was i kind of was thinking about the fawn in the same way that i was thinking about say um the fairy godmother in the wizard of oz or the rabbit in um uh alice in wonderland that the fawn is kind of this uh knowledge keeper 
of of the realm like he knows like what's going on he's showing up in places to be of service but then needs to like step away to take care of something else it's like that gandalf that shows up as he's needed and then disappears and and like kind of to what you're what you're saying i feel like the fawn probably does know everything that's going on in the realm like him and the toad hang yeah oh yeah <laughs> they like yeah. like like they used to like he goes and eats at the pale man's dinner table. I mean, the three of them were probably really big like buddies before the <laughs> yeah. pale man got all gluttonous and like the toad discovered alcoholism and accidentally swallowed that key. Like actually, the fawn and the pale man are the same guy. In the, Rune, yeah, the, the same, same actor. actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are. Yeah, so he's yeah. he's um the uh what is it? The the asset, which is the 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 monster in uh the shape of water. All the gangly things, just like the one guy is the uh the Lord of the Rings or the Gollum guy who plays Smeagol is the same. Mm-hmm. He was also like the monkey in the in Planet of the Apes and stuff. Yeah. Well actually when he was dressed as the fawn, they had him on like uh stilt risers, so he would stand yeah. a foot and a half taller i know i love the shots when you see the fawn like in full like he, he like when like you only see it like twice in the film where like, you see his whole body it's really cool i thought the so I, this is probably the third time i've seen this movie but um what i love is that ophelia's first descent down into the kind of the interstitial interstitial like fawn um realm um he's actually pressed up against the wall like you see his body kind of living among the trees and when the shot turns around, he like breaks free of the wall and like discovers Ophelia for the first you time. You know, another fun fact is he actually like his his uh, costume changes throughout the whole movie, where he looks younger throughout the entire movie. He basically, really? yeah. So like, as like all the scenes, every time you see him, he his like he becomes less and less like of the of the rocks and the trees, and more like of his original kind of animal fawn self. In the end, he's like more of like a more of like a kind of a polished fawn well one one of the things that i love about this story and maybe this will kind of go into some of the things that i was looking at yeah, but um one of the things that i love is the initial story that's being presented to us is that this princess left her realm some like unknown time in the past and that the king built hundreds of these labyrinths but this is the last one which means that there's been like a millennium of time that's gone by. Um, most of the labyrinths have been destroyed. This labyrinth in and of itself is like crumbling. And when the fawn discovers Ophelia for the first time, he makes it sound like she needs to get these three tasks done within like the week because like her, um, it's kind of like the portal back home is about to close. And a lot of the ways that Guillermo's kind of, created this spectrum of objects or this like kit of parts that lives in the film are all these very old things that feel like they've been rubbed raw by the by the like the test of time it's almost it's almost like if alice in wonderland uh went to wonderland for the first time and then fell into a coma for ten thousand years and when she woke back up like the 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 bunny is like crippled and and like the mad hatter's a drunk and 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 like all the trees are like dying and and everything that's beautiful and shiny is is like destroyed and Guillermo's really constructed this world that's like on the brink of kind of falling apart in the dust and it, it shows in like all these elements that he's created. Have you guys read the Chronicles of Narnia? Yes, I love that. I'm just like noticing some similarities, like. With the fawn, like that's who is there under the street light in in Chronicles of Narnia. But it's funny, like the different interpretation of what a fawn is supposed to look like. Mm. Um, and you know, it's like young kids who are kind of meant to be reclaiming a throne that they gave up like a undetermined amount of years ago. It's kind of cool. The 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 Narnia fawns are like young men that have given up no 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 the kids the kids the fawn is the messenger yeah the fawn oh is, the fawn is the, it, yeah, like the in guy. narnia the yeah. the children are these young kids and yeah no they're so it's it's kind of it's so amazing all the different subtle and purposeful and hidden connections that that um uh, guillermo's kind of embedded in in this movie so uh, what you just pointed out with the fawn being akin to um uh, Narnia as being like this messenger, this this leader. 
um, that leads leads the kids through. Um, we see like it, there's there's almost every element that exists in this movie is a it's it's like a parallel distortion of another type of fairy tale. So yeah, run us through this. So so things like the frog. Um, you have things like the the frog prince, who ultimately uh, um, a princess would go and and like kiss and turn and become their uh, king. Well, Ophelia has to go and literally murder the frog to get like a key. So it's it's distorted. Gross scene, by the way. Yeah, like very gross. Like Alice in Wonderland goes through this like mystical little door with this beautiful key that drops her through this fantastic rabbit hole into this like beautiful garden. Well, Ophelia goes through this kind of um, ovarianly, um, like ovarianly um, sculpted tree into a dark hole, and she has to climb through mud to go find this like nasty frog that she has to murder to get this ugly key. Um, like instead of being given like uh, like a, a cool looking mushroom or like a fancy potion that makes you large or small, like potion is reinterpreted as like definitely medicine that's like making her mother ill and like another solution is to use this um uh like mandrake root that's like this misshapen crying baby the the fairies instead of favorite character actually i'm gonna i'm gonna revise my earlier statement mandrake root <laughs> mandrake favorite root. character yeah <laughs> great acting great acting um what else is going on oh so fairies which are these like magical pixies like tinkerbell that's helping us um, the world has taken the toll so much on the fairies that they've returned to these primitive insects. And, and it's through like Ophelia's dreaming that they're actually like coming back to some kind of like middle world of these kind of almost troll fairies. And can I ask you a question? Yeah. So it's interesting. So I wonder, it's just a, this a take. We just watched a black mirror episode. Have you been watching black mirror? I've watched them all. We just watched all of season four in the episode. Um, uh, what is it? hang the dj or whatever the yes one with the with the dating right so i wonder if this is all simulation right no well yes well <laughs> you know i i subscribe to the simulation theory but like i wonder if ophelia's little button says you have nine more months with the fawn <laughs> <laughs> but I, I i wonder if like you're saying that they're coming just in time for the last time like it's just but maybe that's just del toro's kind of uh take on how like this whole simula- this whole thing could have already happened a thousand times much like that black mirror episode like there could have been a thousand little girls who just didn't make the test and he always could have been in the same exact labyrinth in the same exact way mm. like it didn't necessarily it just kind of makes it's just a way of reinterpreting the story to make it so dire and so kind of apocalyptic that like you know it's like any good story if it's not like if the world doesn't hinge or the underworld or like the fate of her kingdom doesn't hinge on this story, then it's not a good story. So I wonder if it's just like, if it really has been something that's taken place so many times and, and it may be, or maybe this is the first time, like, I don't know. Maybe that's just the setting is what, how so Del Toro interprets it. In, in a way, are you saying it's almost like Willy Wonka's golden tickets? Like there might've been a hundred labyrinths and, and the fawns really just like shoving kids up like chocolate pipes and yep. feeding them blueberries. I and, don't know. And each labyrinth is kind of just removing all the contestants. And Ophelia was the true heir because she did the tests the right way. Yeah. Or she was the only one. We're the only one. I think yeah, like it's important to remember that she actually like messes up one of the tasks. And then the fawn says yeah. like we're done basically Mm -hmm. and then and then he comes back and says i'll give her another chance so i guess you could sort of answer it either way using that little scene it's like okay because he gave up on her when she did one thing wrong you could say like so maybe this is like the you know two thousandth time that he's gone through this or that was part of the or because he gives her another chance you can say okay they maybe they're just really they're really desperate to find well let me let me throw this at you given the context of the civil war and this idea that really from history's perspective we are more akin to siding with the rebels in that we feel that the rebels were um justly um that they, they had just cause to fight against the fascist uprising and so in a way, we are rooting for those who are being disobedient. And I think if we look at Ophelia and all three of the tasks, uh, when she goes to uh, fight the toad, 
uh, for the key, she disobeys her mother and gets the dress dirty. When she goes to get the knife from the three keyholes, she disobeys the fawn twice in that she eats at the table and she also opens up the first of the three doors instead of the second. Um, but she's still rewarded with the knife in and of itself. And in, in the reality of her life, she uh, fails at um, uh, preserving her baby, preserving the mother through the mandrake root. So she fails that. She fails at um, um, saving um, um, one of the other fairies. Like one of the fairies gets like eaten, and then she chooses to um, not sacrifice her brother. So in like her reality, she's almost disobeyed three different times. And so I think Ophelia is like tracking this this methodology. I'm wondering if in what makes in, in in the way that she is disobeying, I wonder if it's the disobedience which actually does make her the true heir, given the yeah. context of the world. And I think that's the point. And I I think the word disobedience could be kind of replaced with her own individuality, like her her own her own commitment to her own her her heart and decision making that she knows her own intuition. That's kind of I guess intuition rather than disobedience is what makes her successful. Like, you know, ultimately if you know, if she succeeded at any one of those things, she wouldn't have gotten the chances that she did, you know? So like every, every action that she made, um, helped her kind of achieve her, her, her end goal. But I, and I think that's, that's Del Toro's, um, kind of larger, the larger parallel with, with fantasy in general, that something that's not normal can, or something, if you, you know, something, if you enjoy fantasy, or if you enjoy something that's horrific or, something that's not uh, mainstream that 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 following that intuition can be something that you know guides you to where you want to be you know yes biting the microphone <laughs> man how fucking scary was that goddamn monster the that, pale man yeah gosh yeah. you guys you watched it together right yeah. isn't the pale man just like the creepiest you know what he kind of reminds me of he makes me think of one of those people who was like morbidly obese and then went on like a 60 day diet and it's got all those like skin flaps that are hanging off. Like they, they, they like worked out faster than what their skin could like keep up with. It's all just running off of him. <laughs> but I mean, to kind of to talk about your, the kit of parts you're making here, it is interesting like how this is, this movie is often called a fairy tale for adults and like, it is pretty scary at times. And like, he he definitely is is taking advantage of the the common tropes and objects that we find in more uh, kind of classic fairy tales that to kind of twist them and bring them back to some of the fairy tales original roots. I see you have like the Brothers Grimm on here. Like we we know that like a lot of fairy tales come from these like very violent and uh, like crazy and you know ridiculous roots that that kind of were um, uh, reinterpreted for like a modern 20th century or 19th century like American lifestyle and English lifestyle. So yeah, Guillermo's it's, it's he's kind of getting back to the roots of fairy tales in a lot of ways. Yeah, he talked about how like fairy tales were almost a necessity for the uh, woodland family unit in that you didn't want your kids wandering off into the woods at night because they would die, and so you tell your kids that there was witches. Or that there was like bear spirits out there that would eat them. There is bear spirits out there. <laughs> as far as all the kids it's know, there are. <laughs> yeah, bear spirits. I'm scared of bear spirits. <laughs> yeah, but like, yeah. But then, so we 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 make maps of all these like woods, and then suddenly all the unknown doesn't feel scary anymore. And then we have Walt Disney stepping in and taking all these fantastical stories and putting them to uh, music and color coding them in. Um, Prisma color or whatever. It is. So, so do we want to do uh, fairy rating and final thoughts? Yeah, sure. I think so. I I just think it, it's interesting how you know each character was so specific unto themselves and like what they were portraying, what they were symbolizing, and and the way Del Toro used their kind of relationships with other with other um, with other actors kind of almost spelled out in advance like what would their, what their fate would be, you know. And I and I back to the point where that Mercedes and Pedro are the only main characters that live. Like the doctor dies, Vidal dies, Carmen dies, Ophelia dies. I I, I wonder what that says to tie it back into his view of, of uh, the kind of Spanish Civil War in general. Like obviously he's sympathetic to the rebellion cause. I I don't know. Like Evelyn, for example, like her um, grandmother and extended family, and you know grew up and lived during this time in Spain. And I and I don't know. 
you know, Spain was Franco Spain from the 30s to the 70s. That is like the the roots of modern Spain. And to say that it's bad is a is not necessarily the right thing to say. It, uh, so I don't know, like, what democratic elections started in the, in the 80s in Spain, right? Mm-hmm. So to say that like the rebellions were the 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 re- the rebels were like the only true and noble cause is actually an interesting. I don't know. It's it's so easy at this time to paint the paint that uh, Franco the the Franco and Vidal side is this like true devilish kind of terrible side, but in reality that that became something different, you know. So yeah. it's interesting to think about like how these you know Mercedes and Pedro that that rebel that rebellion also ultimately was squashed and, and never mounted to anything, you know. I think I think if you guys both really like this movie, you should absolutely watch The Devil's Backbone. Um, it's it's so much a trial run for everything that occurs in Pans. It's it's almost like The Devil's Backbone needed to happen. It, it's like Guillermo needed to make The Devil's Backbone, Hellboy, and and his earliest film, Chronos. Um, in order to perfectly sculpt Pan's Labyrinth, because it's such a it's such a great mixture of using all the most appropriate parts of this like Spanish timepiece, um, this like great character design, fantasy um, stage setting, and then this just like complete like division in the way that we think about what is reality and what is what is like fictional and how there is this like transitory like interstitial realm that that your mind can like traverse and i think it like it speaks to a lot of what guillermo experienced as a child um i think he said that um early on in his childhood he would have um like waking dreams where as he was laying in bed he would see these fictional monsters walking around his room and he would actually make deals with them saying like hey I, I'm really tired of like peeing myself in my bed instead of like scaring me. Why don't we be friends? And then like, oh, I'll hang out with you, but you got to let me use the bathroom. Cool. And, and so cool. like a lot of the way I think like Guillermo has approached these stories from, from this, like this unique perspective of his physical experience has been this like manifestation of this middle realm that he's been seeing these kind of like, like waking monsters in his childhood and and that kind of like unique experience mixed with like these early films is like it's like such a great um uh stage setter for what he did in pans so if if whoever whoever's listening and if you watch pans go back and watch his early stuff because this all makes so much sense when you watch watch the earlier things and see shape of water now in theaters near you (laughs) which is also shape of water is like I think it's one of the best movies that it's it's like I'm not don't say anything. I'm not gonna say it's it. I'm not gonna say it's Three like Oscars. the best movie that I've seen in the last like couple of years, but it's literally like top three movies, top like top three to five movies I've seen in the last decade. It's so good. All right. All right guys. I'll take your word for it. So so how many fairies how many fairies do you get? Eve, you go first. I said two whole fairies and a headless fairy. <laughs> So two and a half fairies. Are we counting the headless fairies as two and a half or two and two thirds? We'll <laughs> just go with half. So with half. <laughs> yeah. So you give it. You give it two and a half fairies. Yeah. Any well, last comments? What have, yeah. Go ahead. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, and I I should have done this beforehand, but I think after listening to you guys, I think one thing I would like to do is is go back and like read some reviews of this movie like in Spain to see kind of how it was received. I don't know if it was like widely watched in Spain or not, but I think it would be interesting to see how people over there took it. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, cause we, I mean, like we talked about, like you were saying how there's not even a museum to the Spanish civil war in Spain, right? Oh. Yeah. Not that I know of. So it's like, I, I think that, there's a from what I have seen in in my time being there and and talking with people it's like I just think that people just kind of moved on and they there's not a whole lot of reconciliation that has happened with 
history um, that we're seeing in this movie. So so I'd be interested to see uh, how it was how it was taken there. And I think that a lot of people who, you know, like my grandmother's generation, she was really really young when when um, the actual war was going on and kind of grew up when things were were still under a dictatorship, but but relatively stable one. Um, and I think people kind of maybe lost sight a little bit of how terrible things really were. Like I, I have heard some older people in Spain say like, you know, because things have been a little bit tumultuous there with the economic crisis and everything. And I've heard people say like, well, at least everyone had a car when Franco was in power, like stuff like that, um, where, you know, I, I'd be interested to see how they took this kind of depiction of of that side of things as this true like manifestation of evil and and cruelty and and looking back at the people who were fighting against it even if it was ultimately futile no that's an interesting point i think i would be very curious to see how everybody in span is is viewing this movie as span 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 how everyone in Spam is doing. Spam, now playing on Broadway. <laughs> spam. Monty Python, Spam. Uh, that's a good point, though. We should follow up. We could look at some box office numbers, too. Mm-hmm. We'll probably tell you right there. What about so, you, Ken? What, uh, what rating would uh, you give? I'm going to go film? I'm gonna go three full fairies in this one. Yeah. I, I, I think this is... I bet if you ask like anyone on like that you've seen this movie to how to classify it, there would be just a, such a people would say, "Oh, that's a fantasy movie, right?" Or they, "Oh, that's a kind of like a horror movie, right?" Like I know the monster. Or they, oh, that's like a wartime film, or they would say like, "Oh, like, so there's it, it kind of like it's kind of to each their own, and everyone can interpret it how they want." And it's it. I just feel like it. It really like crosses the. It kind of like checks all the boxes for me of like being a film that draws us into this 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 fantasy realm of of all the monsters and and heroes that we love but it also kind of brings some like real true like brutal realism to the film that i think a lot of my favorite fantasy uh films don't do you know so three full three full fairies maybe just before the one fairy got his head bitten off like <laughs> i mean like not saying that's a perfect review it's not like 100% but maybe it, but like for for the three for the three fairy scale i would go i would go three so i i would have to say i'm two fairies and a third fairy who had one of its wings picked like like pulled off Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm like no oh, rules here. There's I'm, no rules. I'm like almost three fairies, but but I have like one area that I'm I'm kind of like, I like this like I feel like something got left on like the editing floor or something, and that is the story with the rose that that um, Ophelia's mother asked. Um, oh, was it Carmen asked Ophelia to tell um, the little brother this like story of of the rose. And she starts describing this like thing that that every man has like reached for and never ev- like a, like never reached or or got to. And I feel like there's a deeper story in there that that is equal is kind of like lost <laughs> in something. It, it was like the one element that I felt like it wasn't just a nod to something like the shoes in the pale man's room is like a nod to the Holocaust. Or um, uh, uh, like the three like rocks is like a nod to like Jack and the Beanstalk, or the toads a nod to uh, the like the Frog Prince. Like everything felt like a nod, and the Rose story felt like there was something more there. And so my like plucked winged fairy is I want to know what's going on with that Rose. Did you? I wonder if that's from like a prominent piece of fiction, or like I wonder if that came from uh, from something like one of Del Toro's like I don't know favorite stories or yeah. something like that what how d- i don't remember exactly what was the whole thing with the rose i know it was like on top of a mountain and it was like surrounded by yeah, thorns and yeah and people were trying to reach it but no one ever did and it did it just die Is that it just happened? it stayed up there till the end of time ah. and and so like every man looked up at the rose and they knew that it would allow them to live forever but no one dared seek the rose because they knew that they would die trying. Well, you can kind of equate that to Ophelia's arc, right? Like, uh, you know, maybe she reached for the rose and died, or she lived forever because she reached for the rose. 
Yeah. I don't know. I'm not I sure. Know. I haven't really thought about that much. Till you just brought I it up. Know. So maybe I don't know. That's yeah. interesting. We'll have to look at that. So I got I got I got I got to hang up in one place. So I got a plucked fairy. <laughs> so, but other than that, I think it's a uh, it's almost it's pretty much a perfect film. Can you say the title in Spanish one more time? The <laughs> Labyrinth del Fauno. Yeah, and that's where we'd like play the music to go out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Evelyn, thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right, bye guys. We just we recorded Evelyn's first words, which were. <laughs> <laughs> hey everyone, Ken and I just wanted to thank you again for listening to the episode. The Table Sessions podcast is produced and edited by me, Austin Raymond, and Ken Filler, and is a product of The Table Sessions Media, the collaborative platform for audio, visual, and written content. Our theme music was created by Dan Filler. You can find more from Dan on bandcamp.com, such as his album, As the Soil Turns Red. If you like what you heard, you can visit our website, thetablesessions.com, to check out our full range of content. You can also follow us on Instagram at Table Sessions, where we post photos and content from each episode. Also, if you'd like to support our cause in more tangible ways, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the table sessions for exclusive updates and more. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you again next episode.